Friends, let me go ahead and invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 4. We come uh, <clears throat> to the fourth chapter in this book. And before we begin, let me give you a little word here to put what we're going to read into a little bit of context. If you weren't here last week, just to help you out, at the beginning of chapter 3, the author encouraged us, the author of Hebrews encouraged us to keep our eyes on Jesus. You know, that's really been the big issue he's been worried about. You're not keeping your eyes on the ball of Jesus Christ. He wants you to do that. He wants you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. And if you recall, in chapter 3, he said, there are two things you need to know about Jesus. Jesus is your apostle, and Jesus is your high priest. We saw last week, I mentioned it, I'll mention it again, in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he goes through Jesus as the apostle. And then beginning in chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to chapter five, chapter 10, Jesus is the high priest. And so we come here really to the last section where the author is going to talk about Jesus as the one who is sent, Jesus as the apostle. We don't see that mentioned, of course, here. We, we will see what Christ gives as the apostle. He gives rest. When he is sent, what does he provide? He provides rest for a weary pilgrim. So let's go to the word. Let's hear it now, beginning in verse 1 through verse 13. Let's listen to the author of Hebrews. Let's listen to the Lord. Let's hear his word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Uh, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, when God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remained for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray and ask God to give us rest through the preaching and receiving of his word. Lord, we come tired. 
We come at the end of the day. We come needing you. Give us rest. Rest for our souls in Christ alone. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, we saw last week that Moses was a great apostle, but he was nowhere near as great as Jesus Christ. We saw last week Moses was the Old Testament sent one, but Moses failed. Moses did not bring God's people into the promised land. He was supposed to, but he didn't. He didn't. He didn't bring them into the promised land of rest. And now the author has used Psalm 95 as kind of his cornerstone text. He's used Psalm 95 as his kind of basic Sermon text. This is one of the signs, by the way, as a side note, that the book of Hebrews very likely was originally preached the sermon. You see it, by the way, um, in verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. Doesn't that give encouragement to you as a pure side note? When you can never recall the Bible reference, that the Bible itself says... I don't remember where this text is, but somewhere, somewhere God spoke. It gives encouragement to me when I can't recall the Bible passage. It should give encouragement to you, but of course, that's a side note. What is he talking about here? What is, what is his great concern? Remember last week's great concern? Last week's great concern was do not have heart disease. Do not have cardiac arrest. Do not have hard-heartedness. Now, chapter 4. Big idea number 2, if you will. So long as there is the promise of rest in God, don't make the mistake of falling short. So long as there is the promise of rest in God, don't make the mistake of falling short of that rest. That's the sharp command here. Don't fall short of God's rest. The interesting is, as the author deals with this basic principle, he goes back to this Old Testament text of Psalm 95. And yet there's another little encouragement I get from reading the book of Hebrews. There's another great encouragement I get. You may have noticed already that we go through this book pretty fast. We've only been here for a few sermons. We're already in uh, chapter four. And I have a lot of friends. That may surprise you. I have a lot of friends who are preachers. That may not surprise you. But there's a common belief among some preachers that if you read a portion of the Bible, you should comment on every part that you read, every phrase that you read, or at least every verse that you read. Otherwise, you failed to handle that Bible passage. Well, I have a bit of reservation about that. You obviously know that by now, probably. Um, not least because it can become a bit dull. But more importantly than, than dullness, we see here that the New Testament writers themselves, the apostles themselves, did not preach that way. They did not feel obliged to comment on every word or every verse or every phrase every time they cited Scripture. I bring that up only because you look right here and you see it. If you have the ESV, there, there are three quotations that, that are set apart. If you include the last chapter, there's uh, two more. 
And you'll see that in chapter 3, there's this long quotation, verse 7, all the way through verse 11 of Psalm 95. And yet, you'll notice that the author of Hebrews only really zeroes in on two key parts. He only really refers to the second half of Psalm 95 that he quotes. He only really focuses on this large idea. First, don't harden your heart. Last week, second big idea, enter the rest of God. Don't fail to enter the rest of God. So that's the great text that we come to. That's the great question that we come to. It's interesting, of course, here that the author of Hebrews refers to the Old Testament as he talks to the New Testament church. He refers to the Old Testament as he talks to the New Testament church. It's strange because he talks about the Exodus. These Christians had come out of Egypt, these Israelites had come out of Egypt. And God promised a land of milk and honey and oil and wine. He promised a land of rest. You remember the spies were sent into the land, the promised land of Canaan. They said it's a great land. And 10 out of 12 said we can't take it because the giants. But they said it's a great land. They said it was a, it was a, a wonderful land. And yet, <clears throat> we're told over and over again in this text, they failed to enter. Many of the people failed to enter. Most did not enter it because they did not trust in the promise of God to give them rest. And I hope as we unpack this some, it should raise a question for you. Is all of this Old Testament history even relevant for us today? Oh, the Christian, is the author of Hebrews just dredging up past stories for fun? Or is there actually a purpose behind it? I think there is, of course, and I don't want to surprise you. I think there are, there are three answers the author of Hebrews gives to us as to why we need to look at the Old Testament and the Old Testament's view of rest. There's really three answers, three reasons you might say. The first reason, the first reason you see here in verse 2, the author says, Good news came to us just as to them. Good news came to us just as to them. He says, we have heard the gospel rest, that news, just as Israel did under Moses. They heard the news of rest in the Lord. Now, what kind of rest did God promise Israel? He promised them geographical rest. He said, eventually you won't be nomads. Eventually you won't be wandering. He says in verse 2, you have heard this news of rest. But it's not geographical rest he's talking about here. He's not speaking about geographical rest. He's speaking about the words of Jesus Christ. You know the words of Jesus Christ. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Does that mean he'll give us a nap? Does that mean he'll give us some, you know, sleeping pill to take so we can have a good night's sleep? No, he, he, Christ was going to say, learn of me, for I am weak and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. The rest that Christ offers here is a soul-level rest. Jesus told the Jews in the first century, the good news came to them. He said, I am giving what Moses could not give. I am giving 
rest for your souls. That's why the author of Hebrews says, the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And that that tells you that you need to be connected to God's people. The only way you're going to have rest as a Christian, soul rest, really spiritual rest in Christ, is if you are united with other Christians. That's what the verse means. That's what the text is saying here. You see, it's a tragedy if you know the promise up here, but never come to Jesus who offers the rest. If you know the promise intellectually, but never come in your heart to Jesus Christ. Second reason. Second reason for looking back in history. You'll see it beginning uh, in, in verse three, in verse three, in verse four. The author of Hebrews goes all the way back to creation. God's works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. We're told here in this passage that God rested on the seventh day. He spent six days creating, and then we're told he rested. What does that mean? Does that mean that God stopped being active? Does that mean that God, like Baal, went to sleep? No. In John 5, Jesus says, I'm working. My Father is working. doesn't mean God's inactive. If you look at the word rest throughout the Bible, it's so often connected with ruling. That's why Christ sits down. When he has finished his work, his rest is in his throne room. His throne room is the place of his rest. On the seventh day, after God was done creating, he rested from creation and he began to rule his creation. It's like building a boat, I guess. You know, you've been hammering away, you've been sawing away, you've been nailing it in, you've been uh, getting the screws in, you've been doing everything and you finish the boat. What do you do? Take a nap? Maybe you're a little tired, of course. But you're so excited you finished your boat, what do you do? You go to the lake. You go to the river. You throw it in the water. You jump in the boat. You run the boat. You rule the boat. You're resting from your work, but you're not inactive. The Bible tells us that when God was done creating, he rested. And his rest is his rule. Everything that is under God's rule has his rest. Everything that is under God's power, God's sovereignty, God's dominion has rest. We're told that Adam and Eve experienced in some way that rest. We were completely under his mastery. We walk with God in the garden, but we lost it because we said, I am my own ruler. I am my own master. I want to live my life my way. And so we're not resting anymore. Every company will tell you these days, they discovered it finally, that you can't force people to work 120-hour weeks. You can't force people to work 80-hour weeks. You can't, you can't force people to work themselves to the bone. They finally discovered you need some sort of work-life balance, as they call it. But, of course, the Bible knew that from the get-go. The Bible understood 
that physical rest is a point. Your need for sleep, your need for physical rest is a pointer to the fact that your soul itself needs rest. That God has implanted deep in the fabric of creation, deep in the fabric of our lives, this basic principle. All you need to do to understand this Bible 101 principle is to have seven digits. Even if you have a hand cut off, you can still do it. Even if you have a hand and a foot cut off, you can still do it. You can count to seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There you go. And for one out of the seven, for one day in seven, God has implanted this symbol of rest, this harmony and peace under God's rule. From the start, God has given it far more than nap time, far more than just physical relaxation, a sign that points to the deep relaxation, the deep rest found in him alone. That's why the author points out that from creation, it has been true. And then thirdly, right? First is Moses. Second is creation. Thirdly, verse 9 and verse 10, really verse 8 through 10, I suppose. There's another Old Testament figure that comes into play. Joshua. Joshua. Why do they go to Joshua? Because, of course, Joshua looks like rest. Joshua conquers the land. Under his leadership, the people go in. They defeat the enemy. They they get the promised land. And yet, of course, verse 8 tells us if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. He said they get the promised land, but they didn't get all the rest. They didn't get all the rest on offer. And so the conclusion, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest. Today, there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. And that's why the warning is you need to make sure you enter into that rest. Going into the land of Canaan was never the deep-seated, satisfying goal of human history. It was never the final goal of God for his people. There yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, many scholars read this verse here, verse 9, and they say, well, that Sabbath rest is future eternal rest in heaven. But it seems more likely, I would argue, that he's talking about what we call the Lord's Day today, the rest given on a Sunday Because this language of a Sabbath rest is not used of heavenly rest in the Bible. It's used of the daily and weekly earthly rest given on the Sabbath. You see, the argument is this. Jesus has come. Jesus has transformed the Sabbath day from the last day to the first day. And the fact that he's done that, the fact that the gospel brings you a day of rest, a day when you can be refreshed by Christ, like today, a day where you can get his word, like today, a day where you can come together singing songs and fellowship, enjoying God's people, enjoying time with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. That fact is a signal that a full and lasting rest is still waiting for us. We get one day out of seven, but not every day out of seven. We get one day. Friends, how badly you need this rest. You don't just need it because the bones are aching and you're getting tired a lot, but God has made you to rest in Jesus Christ and be transformed by it. 
So really the question is, how do you enter that rest? I mean, that's the whole deal here. Uh, the promise of entering the rest is still there. Verse 11, let us strive to enter the rest. He, he quotes Psalm 95 twice here. Make sure you enter the rest. They shall not enter my rest, the psalmist says. He goes on and on about don't fail to enter. So what does it mean to enter the rest of God? What does it mean to enter the rest of God? That's the key. That's what we need to know here, isn't it? Well, here's how you enter it. You have to know the gospel. The author actually says that twice in verse 2 and verse 10. Verse 2, the gospel came to us. The good news came to us. Verse 10, whoever has entered God's rest. Here's the key. What does it mean to enter God's rest? You rest from your works. What does it mean to enter the rest? You rest from your works. The point is that you enter, you have a taste of this rest as you hear the gospel. You know the story of John Wesley? It's, a, it's an interesting story, right? The Wesley, the, the Methodist founder here in Georgia for years, was an extremely dedicated, diligent church worker. He worked very hard. He gave up a fellowship at Oxford to go to Georgia and be a chaplain to prisoners. He prayed six times a day, but he had no rest in his heart. He had no peace in his heart. The reason he had no peace in his heart is that he thought if he worked hard enough, he did enough things, God would come down and say, I will receive you into my rest. He was working so hard he had no rest because he had no idea how bad he was. He had no idea how evil he was, how wicked he was. It was only on that great uh, ship voyage with the Moravian Christians who were singing as they worked, who were at peace with God as the storms were coming down. It was only when he saw true, vibrant Christianity that Wesley was converted or to put it in a way that you might understand, the only thing that keeps you from the rest of God is not your sin, but your damnable good works, the good works that condemn you. The only thing that keeps you from Jesus really at the end is not some view of sin, but your reliance upon your good works that will actually fail you in the end. All you need is nothing. Do you remember how David was able to get rest? Remember how David says in the Psalms, how is David able to get rest? How is he able to sleep and lie down? He says this, but thou, O Lord, you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of my head. God, you're my glory. Jesus, you're my glory. I don't have any glory of my own. I don't have any honor. I don't have any accomplishments. My works are nothing. They are as filthy rags. Do you know that <clears throat> I'm not a huge fan of escalators. I'm always scared when you get to the top. Very, very scared. Because uh, one time when I was eight years old, I had shoelaces. And what happened when I got to the top of the escalator? I'll, I'll let you imagine what happened when I got to the top of the escalator. Not very pretty. And so from then that point on, that trauma is still recurring in me every time I go up escalators. But of course, the thing about escalators, it's very hard to rest on an escalator. It's very hard to fall asleep on an escalator. I would not recommend trying it if you're on one. 
It's very hard to rest on those long, you know, airport things that keep on moving. It's very hard to rest when things are moving. Have you noticed that? You're trying to rest, take a nap, and if something's moving all the time, you're, you're awake. Of course, that's a basic earthly principle for the spiritual reality. If you were resting on your damnable good works, on your own accomplishments right now, they will shift. You may be doing great this week. Talk to me again next week. If you are resting on your relationships, your friendships, you're resting on the person you love, you're resting on what you have accomplished, well, that person's going to change. That thing's going to change. It's going to shift. Even a good, even the best marriage, you could never rest in. Because no human being is ever going to love you all the time, all the way. Never going to always be there for you. You can't rest in that. The only thing you can rest in is Jesus Christ himself. So what does it mean to enter his rest? It means to give up yourself. Give up your works. It means to look to that good news. And it also means to keep doing that every week. Do you understand that you will meet somebody tomorrow at work. You will meet somebody tomorrow in the, in, the, in the line at the grocery store. And they may ask you, hey, how was your weekend? What'd you do? Let me give you some homework. Let me tell you what to say to them, okay? When they ask you how your weekend was, you can tell them if it was good or bad. I don't know. You know. But you can tell them it finished Saturday night. And they will say, that's really weird. Because my weekend was Friday night all the way till till Sunday night. When you have that conversation, you will finally realize the entire difference between being a Christian and being a non-Christian. Your whole week is different. Do you see that your entire week as a Christian is different from everybody else? The man of the world works hard for the weekend. The man of the world longs for the weekend so he can stop his work, so he can stop doing things. He can relax. He can rest. What does a Christian believer do? She begins her week resting in the Lord. And that rest creates a different atmosphere. It creates a different ecosystem, you might say, for everything you do. You work out of the rest. You live out of the rest. You live out of the rest into the service. You don't serve in order to get rest. You serve because you have rested. You've started off resting. It's like Newton's laws of motion. A body at rest, I'm no scientist, but a body at rest tends to remain at rest. A body at motion tends to remain in motion. Watch your non-Christian friends and see how the weekend is spent. Always in motion. Always rushing around. Watch the Christian who has entered the rest of God. Watch the Christian during the week. If you enter God's rest on Sunday, what will that make you do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday? You will be content in all circumstances. You will be able to rest in Jesus Christ. You will have poise. You know what poise is? Poise is the ability to stand In the trial, you will have stability. You can live without panic. You can live without fear in the world. And in case you don't think this is a problem, 
do you know how much money the pharmaceutical companies make? How much money they make from people who can't get rest? People who are driven mad and wild by sleeplessness, by worry, by fear? Millions of dollars. You see, friends, this text and what it talks about, this one in seven day rest, it sounds very old fashioned. It sounds very retrograde, very ancient, very primitive, very weird. But friends, we think we're so intelligent today. We think we're so scientific. We think we're so modern today. We despise the idea of a Sabbath day rest, and yet we are addicted to trying to find rest any way we can. We can't find it. We're addicted to it. And yet God, from the very creation of the world, has given us the recipe for deep-seated rest. So don't despise your birthright. Don't be like Esau. Don't despise your birthright. It's very common when you hear about this sort of thing to say that any talk of the Lord's Day is legalistic. It's funny because I don't hear anybody complaining about Major League Baseball and saying Major League Baseball is legalistic because they have a rule book. Or the NFL, because they have a rule book, that they follow the rules, therefore they're legalistic. You play the game the way it was designed. And the same way here, God says, this is the way I've designed you. This is the way I've designed the world itself. It's not about legalism or the observance of days. It's about something far more basic and simple. Are you resting in Jesus Christ? Boys and girls, teenagers, if you're scrambling to do your chores Sunday night at 9 o'clock, if you're scrambling to do your homework the night, the Sunday night, that's a perfect sign that you're not resting in Jesus Christ. You spoil the last six days of the week, and then you spoil the God's day in the next week. But let's not leave out the parents, right? What about you? What about the adults in the room? What are we scrambling to do on God's day? Isn't it amazing? The most simplest principle that God can give, one in seven. Just count to seven. Rest in Christ. You see, if you start your week resting in Christ, you'll find the rest of the week becomes a week of rest. In fact, this is the reason. Don't worry, I'm going to get to the last section now of the text. This is the reason why, beginning in verse 11 through verse 13, the author of Hebrews makes a weird move. He makes a really weird move. He goes in a direction that doesn't seem to make sense. He talks about God's word. Verse 12. Any of you know this verse? It's a famous verse. The word of God, living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerns thoughts and tensions. Why does he do it? Why does the author say, oh, by the way, the word of God's a sword. How does that connect to rest? Why do you say verse 13? No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked. All are exposed. Actually, literally, and maybe better translated, helpless. We're all helpless. So what's the connection here? There's a wrestling move in Greco-Roman wrestling. We still use it today. We refer to it today. You went for the jugular. It was the finishing move, if you will. Right? You go for the jugular. That's what happened. That's what happened here. God is going for our jugular. Your heart is restless, friends. Your mind is restless. 
Your soul is restless. You're distracted. You're worried. You're, you're anxious about many things. And God's saying, my word is hitting you, exposing you. You're helpless. Do you not see that you're, you're naked and exposed before my word? Until you see that, you will not have rest. That's the connection. Until you see that, you will not have rest. And God's saying, invitation right now, tonight, right here, invitation to come to my rest. Don't fall short of it. The invitation is here today. It's here today in the words of Christ. If you are heavy laden, if you are burdened down, come to his table. If you are heavy laden, if you are burdened down, if you are restless, come to the table and eat and drink with God. Find peace for your soul. And as you do that, as you receive Jesus Christ, everything else in the world will be transformed. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us rest. We ask that you would, by your kind will and power, set aside these ordinary tokens, this bread, this wine. Set them aside, not to dismiss them, but to use them. Set them aside for your great purpose to give us rest. Father, help us as we come and sup with you. Feed us so we can have rest. We can experience a little bit of your rule and your reign within our hearts and our lives and go forth in this place resting in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.